Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Mr. Kevin Miller, thank you so much for joining me here live in Raleigh for another episode of I Love Data Centers. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So as I think you mentioned, you were walking, this is the first time you've ever been on a podcast? That's correct. First time I've ever been on a podcast and first time, I actually have never listened to a podcast before. Really? Just probably crazy for a technology person myself. All right, man. Well, I'm glad to be popping your cherry, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So the conversation we're going to have here today for those listening is going to be around fiber optics. Um, I know I've been on this topic for the last couple episodes, but Kevin has a very specific skill set and experience that I think uh, those those of you who are listening will appreciate. Uh, so I'm just going to run you through a whole bunch of questions. Okay. And uh, hopefully you can drop some knowledge. Do my best. All right. So before we dig into the technology side of it, um, where were you from and did you grow up around tech? Like, how'd how'd you become a geek? (laughs) So I originally, I was born in Connecticut and grew up in Rhode Island. Um, After graduating high school, went to school out in LA at Loyola Marymount University and Started the company. My first job out of college was working for a manufacturer's rep firm, Golden West Sales and Associates, who sold uh, power connectors and things to the military as a as a manufacturer's rep. And and while I was doing that, uh, my father, who is now also my business partner, approached me as his the company he was working for was looking to source some fiber optic components at their business and thought there may be an opportunity for a commission in there for me. Um, so I went out and sourced some fiber optic components and... Hold on, hold on. You're going a little too fast. Okay. Um, back up for me. Did you... When did you graduate college? In 2001. In 2001. And the first company that you were working with, was that out in Cali or was that... That was in California. That yeah. was in California. Yeah. So I spent about five to six years out in California after I graduated school. Gotcha. Um, getting into that. Um, just as I started that business, sell, uh, reselling fiber optic components was about the same time that the 2001 telecom bus happened Yeah, and trying to pay the bills in, in LA and so forth. Um, kept the business open, but essentially went and took a software sales job. So I was selling CRM software um, slated towards insurance agencies for a number of years. Um, which also really helped to hone my sales and marketing skills. Uh, I did that for a number of years, 
Um, we kept the business open on the side. In the meantime, um, it was both my father and I that were involved in that. Um, he's been an engineer involved with fiber on the on the technical side since the 70s and the inception of the technology. Um, we had some ideas for some additional products that could help engineers test things better. And ultimately, we both in 2008 decided to get back into the business full time and and really give it a go. And we've been growing ever since. So. You, was, has your dad always been here in North Carolina? No. So he was actually in Southern California about the same time I was in oh, Southern really? California. So we're, our family's originally from the Northeast and migrated to Southern California during that time frame. Um, I have an older brother who's a doctor affiliated with Duke University here in the Raleigh and Durham area. And it, they came back here to be closer to the grandkids. And shortly thereafter, um, after the college years were over, I got kind of tired of the LA lifestyle and wanted to change and ultimately ended up back here as well. That's kind of how our whole family ended up in the area. Gotcha. So in 2008, when you really started working with uh, M2 Optics, has it always been called M2 Optics? It's always been M2 Optics. Gotcha. Um, the M2 comes from having two Millers there. Although once people realize that both of us are, it's a family business and it's a co-ownership there. Yeah. People usually make that connection, but um, that's really how we started the name and um, got back into it that way. Gotcha. So for those listening who don't know you, what what is it that you do and where do you do it? What we do is we specialize in manufacturing customized optical fiber platforms that are used for network simulation, um, latency, training, and really system demonstration applications. Um, I guess the short and easy way to say it is we package spools of fiber into professional enclosures that our customers require to test equipment and to test systems. And where where do you do that? Uh, We manufacture everything here in Raleigh, North Carolina. when you say manufacture, like what what kind of manufacturing is going on in this process? So what we're doing here, we have gone out as a company and invested in all of the related fiber spooling and testing equipment. And so what we will do is acquire fiber from the three main manufacturers that are out there. It, it, again, it's all customized, so it all depends on what our customers ask us for. They know the fiber types they need to use for their application. Um, we, we aren't exclusive with any one manufacturer so that we can give them the most options and they come to us, ask for the fiber types. We acquire that from the fiber manufacturers and then we can spool it and essentially cut it to the lengths that they require. And then we have designed, you know, a multitude of, of various portable and rack mount chassis that these spools can, can go into that essentially allow us to do any kinds of lengths and fiber types and, and really give them a, a customized setup based on their needs. So I know you have some NDAs with some of the folks that you work with, but can you give an example of like a tangible deployment? Sure. I mean, we are as a company, um, we work with a lot of the, the large network equipment manufacturers. So companies like Cisco and Fujitsu, um, Nokia, Ericsson, um, all of those guys. And really, our business boils down to anybody that needs a, a spool of fiber for testing or applications. So, you know, a lot of the big service providers like Verizon and AT&T have labs um, that we've worked with as well um, through banks and research research institutions and universities. Um, so really a whole what 
was originally thought of as, hey, it's only the equipment manufacturers using it. Now almost everybody's involved or setting up labs for, for various deployments, data centers, and yeah. some data centers as well who are doing their own managed services and need to test latencies between data center points and so forth. Um, so there's really a wide scale of people that are using fiber now for various testing and, and really time delay app applications. Right on. So you're in Raleigh, you've got a office that's also basically a, a warehouse where you're manufacturing all this stuff too, right? Correct. Yes. How, how big is that space? Um, we have about 3000 square feet in that space. And then our business model is a little bit different. So whereas a lot of manufacturers seek to bring everything in-house from the sheet metal fabrication through the finished product, um, what we've done is we have a core team, a small core team of individuals that are specialized in all the primary areas of the business. And then what we've done is establish long-term partnerships with other local small businesses in the area as well for things like sheet metal fabrication, uh, painting, and so forth. And what it allows us to do is really uh, minimize our, our overhead and, and essentially give our customers the best value for these customized solutions while we're still having the capabilities of a large company through all of these various partnerships. Gotcha. So... Kevin, when you and I first met, the, the, one of the things that blew my mind was just how niche what you do is. It is and it isn't. Um, you know, again, it is niche and, and it, it depends really how the people are doing things um, at all of these various entities. So there's a lot of these large companies that they've gone in their own direction or years before we really carved out this niche for our company and, and designed things and and really set it in, in people's minds that you need to be taking a, a professional approach to packaging spools of fiber. Um, you know, people are installing fiber in the ceilings and they're putting it behind racks and things like that. A lot of it is inefficient and difficult to use. And that's really where our business comes into play. Um, so, you know, there, it, it is, you know, there's more, as I mentioned earlier, there is more opportunities when you really start thinking about who all the different types of people and companies are that can use a spool of fiber. But again, it is a very niche market in terms of the types of people that you deal with and, and uh, the requirements and so forth. Um, it is a very custom business. So who, like, who's it, who would be... Who competes in this marketplace? Um, we have several different competitors. Um, in general, it's other companies like ourselves um, that... Whereas what separates us from everybody is that we've really focused on this as a core business. Um, we do have some other competitors at some very large companies that are more focused probably on, you know, the cable manufacturing, you know, uh, type of markets and, and other products. And then there's some other small businesses as well. But in, in general, they um, are, are focused on a number of different things, where we, whereas we've really focused on this one nation and really have continue to develop it and and deliver more products and solutions for our customers yeah um so when i was i visited your um your offices god like a year ago mm -hmm. um and met your dad who was gracious enough to show me how fiber once it's broken actually gets fused back together again mm -hmm. can you describe for our listeners if it's at all possible like what that process actually entails and and also because there may be those who are listening who don't actually know what a strand of fiber actually is right okay. so maybe let's just start from that level what the heck is a strand of fiber and then how does one actually go about repairing a broken strand of fiber okay well it's interesting because when you talk to most uh, people out in just the general public 
when you think fiber optics, you think Google Fiber or Verizon or Time Warner or Spectrum and, you know, all of these various entities. And everybody always thinks of fiber in a cable because that's what you see. Um, what we actually deal with is the bare fiber itself. So it's the, and essentially fiber is glass. Um, so it's composed of a core and a cladding. The core is where all of the data is transmitted via a light signal, which is a very small portion inside of the cladding, which is simply a, a different, it's glass as well, but it's a different refractive index so that the light in the core stays inside the glass. Um, so, so real quick, is when you say glass, and I think you answered this for me before, um, but I know people have the question, is it actually pure glass or is it made of some kind of composite? It, it, in some ways, it depends on some of the different fiber types that are out there. There's, very, you know, there's communications fibers. Um, there, you know, with, with people out there, you'll find plastic optical fibers. So, you know, when you see fiber optics in a swimming pool or in automotive, sometimes those where it's transmitting visible light are, are made of plastic. And then there's various um, there's various silica-based fibers and and other types of fibers that are geared towards specialty applications. So communications so, fibers might be different from a radiation-hardened fiber that the government may use in a nuclear facility somewhere. Gotcha. But the, the typical communications and telecommunications stuff that we deal with, or at least in the data center world, mm-hmm. that's all what? What is that? Um, that that's just the, the typical silica glass type of fiber. Okay. So you've got basically a glass, a teeny tiny, like how, how big or how thin is that strand? So a, a typical communications fiber, the, the bare fiber itself is only 250 micrometers. So if you think about kind of, you know, a human hair, yeah, um, that's, that's what we deal with um, when we deal with bare fiber on spools. And that's why, you know, in being specialized with what we do, um, a lot of people are used to dealing with jacketed cable that's protected that when you think of a, a patch cable or something of those of that nature, like you might hook up your your stereo equipment with and so on, that type of jacketing, it's easy to handle and work with. Um, this is, you know, very just 250 microns like your like your hair. And I guess the interesting portion of that is of that 250, the light carrying portion, at least in the long haul fiber is only nine microns of, out of that 250. So generally it's it's a nine micron core, there's 125 micron cladding, and then you have basically another um, 125 of a protective coating that goes on the fiber, on, on that bare fiber itself. So it's very minuscule. So that's one of the things that has always fascinated me about fiber is you have a world, an entire globe now that's transmitting communications via light signals over glass. That's you know nine nine microns in yeah. diameter. Yeah. And the the other fascinating fascinating thing before you get into how how you repair it um, is just how many different uh, like what did, how do you say this the the amount of data that can transmit across the different frequencies of light within one signal, right? So the the Roy G Biv where it used to be. It was only there's there's only a handful of diverse signals you could send at the same time based on the the light spectrum, right? Yeah, and so most communications fibers, um, there's really two primary fiber types. There's single mode and there's multi mode. Um, single mode has the smallest core; it's used for long haul applications. Multi mode, which you found in a lot of data centers, although interestingly enough, data centers are going starting to transition to single mode as well, um, has a larger core, which is typically about fifty microns. So. Um, because of performance specifications, the larger the core, you know, 
the signal, there's more space for the signal in there. Generally, you don't get the same distance. So a multi-mode fiber may have a max distance of, you know, a kilometer or two before you start seeing large losses in terms of the light signal. Whereas the single-mode fibers, you know, the standard spool that you'd get from a manufacturer like Corning will be 50 kilometers. Um, and But, you know, long-haul applications can get out to hundreds of kilometers uh, from that perspective. So I'm sure I'm not the only one that has a hard time translating, but like a kilometer to a mile, how many miles are there in a kilometer? Basically, it's about six-tenths of a mile in a kilometer. So if you think 100 kilometers, you're looking at about 60 miles. Gotcha. Gotcha. So for single-mode fiber, typically you can go, what, six miles? It's no, I mean, it's, it's really all determined by the hardware that you're using. So single mode is there's almost no bandwidth limitations on it. So you'll hear of these trials where, you know, companies, you know, you'll see it, you'll hear of a trial, maybe a Nokia and, you know, a Cisco will do a, a trial. I, I just using those as an example, they didn't necessarily do it together, but they'll, you'll see a, oh, they tested a, um, you know, a link between Japan and the West coast of the USA where they were transmitting, you know, a terabit a second or three terabits a second. Um, that's all via the single mode fiber. And is that just one constant strand or do, do you need repeaters at some point? Uh, submarine is a different, is a different after a certain amount of time light signals like anything else some of the light escapes um you know into the cladding and so forth so you have signal loss as time goes on um you definitely in these submarine and very long haul networks need repeaters um we don't we set up customers with in labs with fiber that they're you know doing testing along that with but there's different i know there's different um, i guess specifications if you will for submarine networks i don't know them offhand but it's you know every x amount of kilometers you need a repeater to be able to do that so the the equipment out there you know generating the signal it's only going to go so far so you know on a transatlantic you know where you're going 3000 4000 miles you definitely have you may have repeaters every couple hundred kilometers it may even be shorter than that it may be 50 to 100 kilometers well so you mentioned it um prior but i think we should real quick focus on this what is the limitation of how much data can actually push through a strand of glass as of right now, I mean, it's really, uh, as far as, you know, we know with single mode, um, the limitation is really based on the gear itself. So there's there's a lot of different, you know, it's probably a whole separate discussion. There's a lot of different performance factors that come into play. Um, for example, you'll typically transmit a signal at a specific wavelength. Now within glass, for example, if you were sending a, a data signal at 1550 nanometers, you know, there's systems you can set up now where um, there you, you can send different data streams at these different wavelengths. And so there will be systems out there where they can take, you know, eight or 10 different wavelengths and do what they call multiplexing and where you essentially combine all the wavelengths onto a single fiber. So you have a different channel and there could be 40 channel systems, 80 channel systems, you know, with 20 gigahertz spacing or and so forth. And so when you start adding in all of the different data rates that you can get, you know, at, um, with a single signal, then combining them with multiple signals, you know, so it's, it's almost limitless in that sense. So there's no, there's no limitation that I'm aware of so at this can, point in terms of the fiber itself. So you can push, you know, petabytes through 
Yeah, it's, it's simply, and I think this is a key point for people to understand, it's the hardware on both ends, right? That's, that's correct. the limiting factor. That's correct. Because you've got to take all that data that's coming through and you've got to process it and then you've got to send it back out the other end, right? That's correct. Yeah, so you transmit it on one end and you receive it on the other. Um, and with a lot of systems, they're, they're two-way, you know, bi-directional systems. So you have signal down and signal back. Um, you know, there's fiber pairs. You can think about it from that perspective, but that's multiplexing is really the big thing that everybody's doing now. Um, so when you hear something about maybe a hundred gig system, you know, you'll have some people that are doing four channels with 25 gigs on each channel. You'll hear people that are doing 10 channels with 10 gigs per channel. And as these transmitter receiver devices, um, transceivers as they're called, you know, continue to advance and be developed, you know, back in the day, the popular thing was one gig transceivers. Then they announced the 10 gig transceivers and now they're up to 25, they're pushing 50. And and whereas 100 gig was kind of the big thing coming down the pipe, all these manufacturers are now talking 400 gig systems and beyond. So, so who makes who makes those big routers basically? Now, are you talking routers or are you talking the transceivers? Aren't there only a few companies that like sell exclusively to like the Big carriers, right? Yeah, the big carrier. There's there's kind of the market drivers in there. So um, there's a company that some some may be familiar with called Finisar. Okay. They're one of the really the pioneers and leaders in the transceiver market. Um, they actually they were in the news recently. They inked to deal with Apple because they do some other chips and things of that nature that are used in some of the handheld devices outside the scope of what we're talking about here. Um, Finisar is one. Avago is another. Um, but there's really these are some of the most popular things out there. Yeah. Um, you know, there's also a huge aftermarket for these devices. So overseas from China and other places. I mean, there's. 10, probably, you know, thousands, if not, you know, maybe even 5,000 or 10,000 companies out there that are selling transceivers, whether they're original manufacturer. And then also to go along with their gear, um, in addition to the Finisars, yeah, Cisco and Juniper and, and all the big network equipment manufacturers make their own transceivers to match perfectly and go along with their own equipment. So how about, how about the routers themselves, though? So, I mean... My understanding always was that the transceiver, the router serves as a transceiver. Is that not the case? Or is the transceiver completely separate from the router? The transceiver, simply put, I mean, they're really little modules now. The trans, the transmitter, the receiver, that is your laser that is is putting out, you know, the whatever wavelength signal. And so the, they call it a transceiver because it within one individual module, you have a transmitter and you have a receiver. Right. So, you know, you, they're usually a bi-directional type of setup. So on the other end, you'll have a transceiver and they're the actual light source. That, so that's agnostic of the, the manufacturer of the router itself. Potentially. So Cisco, if Cisco makes a router or a transmitter, you know, they'll strongly suggest you use, you know, the Cisco brand transceiver that gotcha. is, that's plugged into this. But, you know, these aftermarket types of companies will develop Cisco compatible, you know, generic ones that are typically a significant price difference. Um, and there may be performance differences like anything else that's manufactured. Um, you know, there's a wide scope of, of people that do these, but because of, you know, the growth of the whole market and the requirement to have these in all these systems, I mean, it's just an, an enormous market yeah. globally. All right. So let's then get back to the other question, which is if a strand of the fiber gets, you know, cut, um, how does one go about fusing it back together again? 
it's really pretty straightforward. There's something that they call a fusion splice, a fusion splicer. And essentially what you're going to do with that bare glass is you have to strip it back, back to the actual, to get rid of the coating. And what the fusion splicer does is it will align these two tiny pieces of fiber and essentially melt the ends and put them together and then, you know, essentially heat it back up to strengthen that. And then there'll be a coating that goes over it. Um, if you really Google on the, uh, on the web anywhere, you know, the fusion splicing process, there's probably a ton of videos that you can come across on YouTube and other places showing the process, but it's really pretty neat to see that there's devices capable of lining something up and they actually do a complete core alignment. So you're talking the alignment of, you know, two nine micron cores together. Yeah. I remember when, when your dad showed me how to do this, um, he actually did it right in front of me, and there was a. We were looking through a microscope, right? Yeah, you have so to look through a microscope. We're going to see something that small. Yeah, they'll have a little video type of display that magnifies it and shows both ends, and you can actually see the physical alignment of the fibers, and you can get a good idea then once it's fused. And, and the machines now will tell you how much light loss you'll have, you know, going through that after the splice is done. Yeah. Um, there's always some tiny bit, but these machines are getting so good now that, you know, there's almost, there's virtually, if you have good fusion splices, virtually no loss. And sometimes with the test gear, you can't even see them after you put them in. Oh, well. Now it's a little bit different, you know, when if that's for what we do inside of our, you know, dealing with bare fiber. The more practical cases out in the field um, where, you know, these service technicians for the service providers and cable companies and so forth, if they have a fiber break, they have to go out and, and they'll do the fusion splicing as well. They're starting to use more of this equipment, but there's been other things like mechanical splices where, you know, you, you put two ends of the fiber into something else, which tries to match it as closely as possible. You'll see a bigger loss there. So there's different types of splices that you can do, but ideally the fusion splice is, is the best way to do it. So... Um, what is causing the, the loss after you do, uh, a splice after you fuse it back together? Really just, there's, there's always going to be, you know, a slight imperfection in the glass and that's really what it comes down to. I mean, in our, in working with fiber, I mean, we, we, with all of the fiber spools we get in that we're packaging for customers, you know, you can get two fibers, same fiber type, same manufacturer, two different spools from from you know one of the manufacturers and nothing's ever exactly the same hmm. um you know there's imperfections in glass just like there is any in any in anything else so when you have a broken fiber you're essentially taking a large <laughs> imperfection obviously with a break and trying to put that together you know the glass is being melted back together but you do have some you know, you do have what's left over of putting two things together there and that will cause uh, some slight loss usually, but it's just very minute these days. So at what point, so to your point, it's becoming a better, more efficient process. Um, so that the need to potentially, you know, if there's multiple, actually, let me back up. How frequently does fiber out in the field, you know, out, you know, going along the train lines, um, get cut and need someone to go out and truly fix it. Do you, do you have any idea with that, like how frequently that happens? Uh, not being a service provider ourselves, yeah. um, I'm not sure, but you know, breaks and you know, degradations, obviously if you put a fusion splice in, no matter how much you protect it, there's, you know, it's never as perfect as it was when the glass, you know, was first manufactured. Um, so some of those fusion splices um, can degrade over time. Um, when you think about it, 
you know, you have construction going on all over the place, you know, right. a college campus or some, you know, a telephone company yeah, or something. Just happened actually right down the street here with all the new construction for the new Citrix building going okay. on. Okay. So they, they hit one of the deep fiber vaults. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's exactly, that's exactly what goes on. And so, you know, those kind of things happen more frequently than not. And that's part of the reason we suggest even when you're in the test lab, packaging your fiber professionally, you know, uh, Traditionally, people would just sit spools of fiber on the rack or on the bench. But when you're talking about glass that's, you know, bare in that case, you know, you could sit a screwdriver down on it or drop something on it. And you're never going to see on a fiber that small, you're never going to see the issue, but you're going to, it'll affect you from a performance standpoint. Um, out in the field, you know, there's people that dig up things or people digging in their yard in cases. Um, one of the big, one of the big issues I know that happens in a lot of municipalities that run fiber is is not everybody has fiber in the ground. So, you know, Apex, where, where you live here in North Carolina, has some spots where the fiber is aerial up on poles. And that's the case around the country as well. They always have a problem. Everybody laughs about it, but there is a problem with squirrels chewing through the cable. Yeah. And that happens. And all it takes is, you know, a squirrel to, to gnaw through it and, you know, you have a broken fiber. Huh. Um, more recently now, though, with, you know, everything going on with governments and hacking and terrorism and so forth, you have, um, it, it's not very hard, actually. It only takes a laptop and a photo detector and a couple of other cheap pieces of gear to actually tap, tap a fiber optic cable itself if you can get to an access point. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another area where, you know, monitoring the infrastructure and so forth would come in and that needs to be taken care of. But you know, I think one of the misconceptions is everybody's so worried about hacking, they don't think about, well, if, you know, a lot of these municipalities have their 911 and emergency services over fiber now, all it takes is one person to snip a cable somewhere and now 911's down yeah. when potentially other events are happening. So being able to get somebody out there quickly, you know, if you're a service provider or something, is critical, especially yeah. if it's one of these key routes, like you, like you mentioned here in downtown Raleigh. So um, I gave you a shout out in one of the prior podcasts speaking specifically specifically to the ability to track where along the path there is an actual issue. Mm-hmm. Can you can you speak to like how the process was done prior to some of the technology that's out today that allows you to identify where and then kind of speak to how not just what but how that technology has made it so that you don't have to just go through that. Sure. Yeah, I mean traditionally, you know, if if you think about it just from, you know, a cable TV subscriber at home, you know, your cable goes out. If there was an issue, maybe a backhoe dug up, you know, uh, was doing digging or construction, they break a fiber um, or, you know, more of the case where a squirrel chews into a fiber. Maybe they don't chew through the whole thing, but they chew one of them. And so visually it's going to be difficult to see. Traditionally, a subscriber would call or whoever the user is on that line would call, complain, and they would have to send a service team out to try to locate that. Um, you know, they may send them to the closest, you know, you can do some determinations based on your network setup of where that may have occurred, but it involves rolling a truck out into the field, which costs money, and having somebody put a test device on there to send a signal to try and locate that break. Um, it all costs people, money, and so forth. And, and interestingly enough, even with the new technology for fiber infrastructure monitoring that's out there, the majority of companies still aren't doing that. Everybody's very focused on on protecting the data side of it, but when it comes to infrastructure monitoring, there's still very few companies and entities that are doing that. Yeah, um, you know, they may do the critical backbones, but when it comes to you know a lot of the other a lot of the other cables that are out there, um, everybody's worried about data, but 
you know, they don't think about if we don't have a connection, that's the problem. So it could take, it could take, I've heard times where it could take companies four to six hours just to locate the break in the first place before they even have to splice it back and, and resolve the problem. Um, what's been what's been developed in recent years are these fiber monitoring systems, which effectively send a signal just like any other system would over a fiber cable and through a fiber. And essentially, what it does is it sits there and it looks at that signal. Um, will necessarily you know determines the endpoint of the cable when it's in good working order. And if somebody digs it up or there's a break or an issue at a certain point, it'll see that problem midway, for example, in a cable and sound an alarm in the device that will say, you know, on fiber number 20, you have an issue or you have a broken fiber at X distance. And these systems are good enough. They can pinpoint now to within eight or 10 meters of where the problem is. So now your service teams, instead of being several miles away and trying to visually find it or, you know, work it that way, can get something right on their mobile device or, or the network administrator can get something saying it's this fiber, it's at this place. They can tie it into all the GIS mapping technology now so they can get a visual rendering of where that may be yeah. on a Google map or something of that nature and, and really just cut down that downtime. Well, freaking fascinating. Um, so as you started to get into this industry. I'm curious, like what was one of the experiences you had or data sets that you came across that just blew your mind and made you fascinated in, in learning more about this space? I think really when I started the business is, is you know, I was, a, I was young at 22 and just trying to make an extra buck while I was working as a sales rep for another company. But what I guess I really started seeing was in reading the research was that, you know, fiber was really getting going at that point in time and really look to be the thing of the future. Um, and, and I think just the idea of, you know, the technology behind it and then it being something that was, you know, from a worldwide basis was gonna be implemented really got me excited and in, in, in terms of starting the business and, and going down that path versus, you know, doing something else with my life. So, I mean, hats off to you for being the entrepreneur that you are. Thank you. Um, and kind of seeing that seeing that um, trend occurring, obviously, and, and realizing that becoming a specialist in that space um, would create a, a ginormous opportunity for you. Where, having been involved in that industry for as long as you have, where do you see it going? Like what, a lot of people ask me, like, what are the innovations that are going on in the data center space? And I have a couple answers. Um, but there's, you know, fundamentally, we're not going to see like data centers in the ocean, like, you know, with dolphins kind of running around pulling tape drives out. Um, there's not going to be some crazy paradigm shifting um, new data center that's going to emerge. Um, there's a lot of companies that claim that that's what they're doing, but when you really look at the technology, it's really nothing too different than what's already been done. Is there anything paradigm shifting going on in, in your space? Well, it's been interesting because recently, especially in the financial world, time delay and latency is everything. You know, they're constantly looking for ways to cut latency and so forth. Um, also, it costs money to put cables in the ground mm -hmm. and fiber cables. Um, some things popped up recently in the industry where people were looking to do uh, microwave communications, so through the air, because, you know, where something may have been a, you know, a 13 or 14 millisecond round trip between two cities, um, you know, microwave going through the air, you know, less resistance and so forth, you know, you might be able to do it in eight, but mm -hmm. there's, 
and, and Google not too long ago started announcing in the, and really the whole 5G and, and mobile shift where, you know, some of the Google and some of these others who started with Google Fiber then, you know, made a shift and, and they put a hold on going to additional cities and then started coming out with some press about, you know, we're going to start trying to do things via mobile and deliver higher speeds. And it kind of caused a scare for a short period of time, especially when somebody like Google comes out and says something um, that, oh my gosh, is fiber going away? You know, yeah. everything's going to be wireless. And, and the reality was that, that kind of settled down a bit because it came back to saying that's, we were, you know, we were looking more at rural areas where it's, you know, maybe not as cost effective for the fiber, for the fiber service providers rather to lay fiber out to, you know, homes that are spaced long distances away and so forth. Um, so there was a bit, you know, especially they are making advances on the mobile side, but what most people forget is that, you know, your phone pings a tower. Well, that tower, you know, generally has to go through various data centers and, and nodes and, and things of that nature. And that's all, and that's all the wireless backhaul, they mm -hmm. call it. And all of that is fiber. And so, and, and, and there are hindrances to certain technology. The microwave, for example, if you run a direct fiber route, you know, when you do microwave, you have to have towers spaced at, you know, certain distances away costs a lot of money to put towers up. I mean, in fact, I can't release the name, but we had a customer that looked into that um, on the financial side of things and, and thought about that and realized that all it takes is one person to buy a plot of land slightly more in line than what you have all your towers. And if they save, you know, a millisecond or a, or a nanosecond of time for a financial, for a financial trader, they'll dump your service and go with someone else. And so it just becomes, you know, a, a rat race in that sense to who can get the, the straightest line of, of microwave towers. And, and then you get into, you get into microwave spectrum and, and, you know, all of that side of the business. So we really see fiber is continuing to grow. I mean, Corning recently inked a $3 billion deal with, with Verizon. That was big news. So Verizon, was buying, you know, tens of millions of kilometers that they're going to deploy in the U.S. They wouldn't be doing that if fiber wasn't going to continue to be on the growth path. So what are some of the other, I mean, I would think if anything came in, in the path between two towers, right, that would cause an issue, right? Sure. There's environmental. like satellite TV, right? I mean, yeah, there's environmental factors, um, things like a lightning strike near the wireless equipment, um, you know, cloudy days, rainy days. I mean, all of that, of course, is advanced, too, in terms of of when you talk microwave and, yeah. and things of that nature. Um, but there are, there's environmental factors, there's, you know, there's free space optics and things like that. But if there's a building in between two points, sure, you have, you can have a problem with that. Yeah. So, so like any, like anything, all of these technologies have pros and they have cons and, and, um, but, but from what we've seen and what we've experienced, you know, fiber continues to be the way to go. And, and I guess along that path, you know, the fiber manufacturers themselves continue to, to develop new fibers that are better performing. So mm -hmm. um, several years ago, maybe about 10 years ago, you know, Corning's standard single mode SMF 28 fiber was specced at 0.2 dB uh, per kilometer what of signal loss. That's signal loss. Okay. So we're talking about, you know, every five kilometers, you have a dB of signal loss. So they're becoming... There's less and less latency, or not latency, but but packet loss. Is it considered packet loss? Packet loss gets into the data level. This is actually light loss itself. Oh, light loss. Light well, loss. that's that so, would be. And, and that light loss goes along with you know packet loss right. and data loss and so forth. Yeah. So what's funny is the whole concept of um, 
what we were talking about earlier about it's the hardware on both sides that's the limiting mm-hmm. factor. I learned that by watching like a Discovery Channel show where they had a laser that was being shot from space down to the Earth, and they were pushing a petabyte a second, right? Okay. And they were super stoked about the petabyte a second until the scientists realized that they just didn't have equipment that could actually process that fast enough. Mm-hmm. So you could push through a laser beam. But the other thing that they realized was uh, a laser beam requires a decent amount of energy Mm -hmm. to create. Um, And if anything flew in the path of that, it would like cause damage to whatever flew in the path of it. Um, And so I just, I found it, that's what really taught me that it's not how much information can be pushed at any one time because you can push a lot of traffic, a lot of data, um, through a strand of, of fiber um, or through uh, a light stream, um, it's how quickly that can be passed through on the other end. And I, um, yeah, so the limitations of having a, a wireless technology that's interesting. Yeah, and and that's and and you know, there's microwave, there's there's traditional wireless, you know, with four G and five G. I mean, they all, you know, wireless is here to stay for sure as well, um, yeah. and that'll continue to grow. Um, but again, there's deployment issues with that five G. You know, even when you think of your your computer router at home, you know, if you go to switch from the two or three G signal to the five G signal, it'll say right on the router instructions you need to be closer to it, or it may not go to the other end of your house. So you have different frequency limitations. And so when they talk 5G mobile, they need to find a way to really, they're going to have to have, Hmm. you know, mobile spots, basically a lot closer, you know, rather than one serving a neighborhood, you may need, you know, one or multiple on a street, especially Mm -hmm. in the city and other places like that. And so AT&T and others are coming up with some creative ways to, to, you know, put, put these things onto existing poles that they have already, or, you know, you don't want clunky equipment all over the place either. So how they can kind of disguise that and do things. So, you know, there's all kinds of kind of interesting, neat things that go along with all of this. Yeah. Um, along with, you know, the fiber manufacturers continuously making better fibers that are, you know, reducing loss. Um, submarine fibers are extremely expensive, but they have, you know, the, the least amount of loss versus, you know, a standard communications fiber that you might find on a land-based system. So it was one of the questions um, that I was going to ask you is what what is the difference between a submarine cable or fiber versus a terrestrial fiber? It's really in just, you know, each manufacturer, um, they put patents around it and so forth. So, you know, they're able to do things and develop the fiber in a way that essentially allows you to go longer distances with less signal loss. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned, you know, some of the, like a loss spec, um, you know, Corning's standard or, or, or OFS or Prisme and any of them, their standard communications fiber are now down to maybe 0.18. Uh, dB per kilometer of loss. If you look at a submarine fiber, it might run, you know, the high end spec might be 0.17 or 0.16 because you're going such long distances. The idea is, you know, you want to be able to go a longer distance till you have to put one of those repeaters on it um, and, and go along with it that way. But we've seen, you know, the succession, they get a few the specs get better, you know, every five to six years as they develop more fibers and, and, you know, but ultimately it takes time for those to get it, to get in the ground. So once you have fiber in the ground, it's not easy to go and replace that fiber. So a lot of the fiber that's in the ground could be, you know, a decade old that you have now and new installations get the new stuff. But we find there's a lot of people that actually ask us if we have access to old fiber 
which generally we don't because they know they have a system out in the field that has fiber that's a decade old and because the new stuff is so much better, they're not actually getting an accurate simulation if they use new fiber um, because the specs are worse, obviously, for, for older fiber with the way they've progressed over the years. And that's probably due to a variety of factors. But would, you know, if, if a strand of fiber out in the field didn't need, you know, splicing on a regular fusing on a, on a you know, was never needed to be fused to be mm -hmm. fixed, would there be a degradation or would it just, like, what, what it's else just causes really degradation? It's just really water getting in. Okay. And that's a big, you know, water and moisture in general, even just moisture from the air. I mean, in we, we don't, the things we do, we're not out in the field other than, you know, some of the fiber monitoring equipment we do. So we don't get into a lot of the environmental aspects of it because most of our customers are using it in the lab environment. But what we found is that if a customer sends us a spool of fiber that was manufactured 10 years ago, even just sitting out, you know, it's usually a, a, a clear looking fiber. Um, you'll see yellowing to it if it's been sitting in the sun. Um, and because it's been in that shape on the spool, for such a long time, some customers will come to us and say, you know, we'll give you our 50 kilometer spool. Can you re-spool it into two 25 kilometer spools that we need? You know, we want to break it up and, and do a different test with. And if it, the, the fiber well, may have gotten brittle and yeah. be in sitting in that wrapped form on the spool. So, you know, we'll tell people, hey, we can try to do it, but there's a good chance it's going to break as soon as it gets on the machine just yeah. because it's glass and it's been, you know, in a certain form for a long time. and. And, you know, so there are, you know, there are things of that nature. And if moisture, like, like with really anything, electronics, anything else, you get moisture in anything, it, it tends to cause a problem. Um, that's, that's something as well. Wow. And so they, they have low water peak fibers and things of that nature where, you know, they've engineered these in a way that's beyond, you know, our knowledge base, but they've engineered it and have ways of doing it where it's, yeah, you know, it's it's better against moisture, the, the general environmental moisture that, that occurs no matter what. Wow. And so you you said your dad had been in the industry since the 70s, right? Mm -hmm. What was what was his job and how did he, do you know his story as to how he got started? Um, he was, and he had an electrical engineering background, um, but he got started early with um, Kodak and then also um, GE. So he was working with GE on military applications. Um, and so he got involved with GE. I don't know the specific types of projects he was working on, being that it's government, military. Yeah. They don't release that type of information anyway, but he got involved in, and had some patents related to um, using fiber for certain transmission transmissions and, and various things. So a lot of that was under wraps, but that's really what it was just the basis of him taking the job and getting on board with, with GE that he got into the space at that time. And then at all of the, the subsequent companies that he worked with before, you know, he and I got together um, later on in his career, um, you know, had something to do with fiber from that perspective. So, yeah. So the lessons that he's learned over time as it relates to the business, are there any key lessons that he's taught you over the last 15 years, basically, or 10 years that you've been working directly? Relating to fiber or just business in yes, general? Yes, yes and yes. <laughs> okay. I mean, I guess he and I share a similar mindset just as an entrepreneur, and I think a lot of other entrepreneurs can probably identify that it, it, a lot of it's just really persistence. Um, you know, certainly there's a timing ingredient to it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's 
getting involved with fiber when we did, um, you know, really as as the technology's taken off in the last decade or so and continues to, I mean, like any products that go viral or other things, there's always some luck and some timing involved with it. But risk, right? I mean, there could have been something that came out or whatever could have been that could have, you know, made fiber obsolete. Yeah. And there still could be. I mean, that's, that's, I guess, as an entrepreneur, that's the thing that you always have in the back of your mind for your business is, you know, somebody could come in. There's there's so, so many bright people out there that are constantly thinking about better ways to do things that, you know, just as I mentioned earlier, just Google coming out saying we're going to do everything wireless was enough to cause and not even talking about the technology was enough to cause a huge scare of everybody saying, you know, is fiber going to go away or is fiber going to be used less? Um, there's always that thought, you know, in, in your mind from that perspective. But um, you know, I think just the lessons I've learned from him, um, he, he was an entrepreneur as well. So in addition to working, he had, um, he worked, he had some electronics related, uh, an electronics related business that he did with read relays prior. So I was fortunate enough, um, that, you know, he and I both work well together. There's not a lot of fathers and sons necessarily, or, or, or fathers and daughters or mothers and, yeah, family. you know, sibling, family, family in general, yeah. family businesses, a lot of people butt heads, but I think with my sales and marketing background and him being on the engineering side and both of us kind of staying in our lanes and working toward the common goal. Um, we've, we've always been of the mindset that, you know, you can almost do or sell anything. You just, you know, need a good plan when you go into it and really just focus on what you're doing and, and be able to, to persist with that. Um, I was at an entrepreneur event not too long ago where there was an entrepreneur, a very successful entrepreneur locally here in Raleigh that said, you know, in the course of 13 years, he had 12 different businesses, but one business lasted 10 years that he sold for, you know, a huge amount of money. And he, and, but what he said was what it really determines is the people that generally and the entrepreneurs that can, that can survive the longest and the most years, you know, finding ways to adapt your business, um, to as technology changes, those that can adapt and be flexible and survive are generally the people that in the long run are the most successful. And, and I think that's how we've modeled ourselves uh, being a being a custom business as well, where we allow our customers to really tell us what they need, and they play a huge role in in all of the development that we've done. Um, you know, and we look to them to do that, and that's why I think you know we've really established a lot of close partnerships. Um, what we do is not easy, but you know it's made easier by the fact that you know an engineer can tell us, hey, this what what you have now is nice, but if we had something like this, mm-hmm. or if you could develop like something like this, it would make our life easier. That's ultimately what we're all about as a company, and so you know we're constantly adapting our business as well. So if you could go back to when you first started, um, and let's even go back to like 2001, 2002 timeframe, mm-hmm. what would you tell yourself? What would you say to yourself? I think I was asked this other, this question recently. I think the one thing is maybe I would have gotten gone, you know, I started the business and then got out of it for a number of years. I think looking back, I kind of wish I would have gotten back into it sooner. Yeah. Um, now, while I was out working for other companies um, that were all, you know, successful software companies, I did gain a lot of knowledge in, in that that helps me now, even in terms of the sales and marketing of our products and, and just, you know, business management and so forth. So it was invaluable experience. So you don't know how it would have yeah. worked out. But 
you know, having the opportunity to, to do a family business, um, you know, that's something that, you know, it's special to me, but also, um, you know, being able to get an earlier jump start, I guess, knowing now that how, pro- how successful we'd be able to develop the products, you know, you start thinking back saying, had we been, had we developed a few of these things, you know, five years earlier, you know, how, how much more successful would we be at this point now? Yeah. Um, that's kind of, I guess, not, it's not a regret. It's just looking back, you know, and, I think some of it, when I first started the business, I was fresh out of college. I didn't have a lot of experience. So I think, you know, having the skill set I have now and knowing what's available that's out there, you know, and a lot's changed on that side as well. You know, back in 2001, things were still traditional. People were picking up the phone to to make cold calls when you wanted to find a customer in sales. Now there's been all kinds of, of technology for content marketing and web-based marketing that that give, you know, smaller businesses, you know, the same, the ability to sell right along with the big guys and be successful in doing it. Um, I think some of the neat stuff that I've seen that's come out now is the whole AI revolution. So, you know, I've come across some interesting tools. We haven't implemented them at our office, um, but there's some interesting AI sales tools where you can enter some different input about your customer base and it will actually go out and find people that would be ideal customers for you. And, and there's ways you can, you know, there, there's AI systems that can respond to inbound inquiries now at your company that, you know, before it even touches a salesperson, there's there's discussions going back right, and forth. So it'll be interesting, you know, five or 10 years from now to see where things are. But looking back when I started the business, I was just telling somebody the other day, had I had, had all those tools been available then, you know, it might have been, it might have been, it definitely would have changed things, not only for us, but probably everybody else as well. Yeah. So I want to go back to this family, family business. I know I really can't even think of a family business uh, that's operated well, right? Mm-hmm. How is it that you and your dad are able to make that work? I think it's just, uh, you know, the way our personalities complement each other. Um, you know, he's, we're both super hardworking. Um, you know, he's, like I said, he's always been focused on, he loves product development, engineering. I mean, that that's him. That's his background. Um, that whole piece of the business. And I've always been, gone down the path of sales and marketing. So, you know, for many years, it was just two of us early on. And, and so, you know, he'd design products and build them and I'd sell them. And that's really how we started the business and then started growing to be able to add people and so forth. But, you know, I think just each of us having our own uh, special areas of focus, but then also, you know, oh, we've always had a good relationship, you know, even when I was a kid and growing up and so forth. And so, you know, our relationship probably only just got closer. And, and you know, it's not like it, like anything else. You have your times where, you know, you may not see eye to eye on something. But ultimately, I think the fact that we both work towards the same common goal at the end of the day, like you, like, you know, the most successful sports teams, in other words, when you have good management, you have good coaches and you have players that buy into the system, you know, generally those teams are, operate a lot better than, you know, individuals kind of doing their own thing and so forth. And yeah. so, I mean, maybe it's just, you know, pure luck that we both get along that well and, and um, you know, have that type of relationship, but it's, but it's been great. And, you know, it's something I know he and I both each cherish, you know, respectively on. 
from either perspective. And from, I mean, communication must be an absolute critical piece there, right? So A, like how have you guys been able to kind of work through the communication piece? Um, and that ties into kind of a follow-on question about when you're working with someone who is your dad or your son, right? <laughs> you have a lot of emotional baggage and you just, you know, emotional um, reflexes that come into play. Um, how do you work through that? I think, you know, we haven't had many situations over the years that have resulted in a big blow up between one another. And again, you know, I realize that's a rarity. Dude, and so you're like the only <laughs> person on the planet, I think, who I've ever forgot who has that. And there's times where we'll bicker back and forth on something and some of our employees will probably chuckle at it as well. Um, but overall, I mean, it's been pretty seamless from that perspective. And I, and I think trust comes in, trust comes into a lot of it. You know, he trusts that when I'm off doing something, you know, I'm doing something that we're working towards the goal or, or, you know, he'll say, hey, based on what your area of expertise is, you know, I trust in what you're doing here. You know, we kind of each empower one another to, to go do things, to go take it on and take on the challenge and do it. And, yeah. you know, it works from that perspective. Um, but I think it's just, you know, even if there's any bickering slightly or we don't see eye to eye on something, you know, just being able to sit down and say, Hey, look, we're both trying to get to the same end goal. You know, let's just talk through it. What's the best path to getting it done? Cause you know, as a small business, you don't have time to sit around and, yeah. you know, go back and forth for an inordinate amount of time on things. Um, you know, you have to make quick decisions and in the best interest. And so you kind of weigh your options, but, yeah. but communication, especially I think for any small business um, where you have a tight knit team that's working together in some ways, you know, being able to communicate with one another, trust one another, um, and work effectively, almost that culture is, uh, as I believe, you know, more important than, um, you know, necessarily the exact skill set somebody might bring. You know, you might have somebody that has a better skill set onto the team, but, you know, if they don't get along with anybody when you're a small business, you know, it can cause major problems and disruptions and so forth. Whereas you can be just successful with somebody, maybe they don't have the same exact skill set, but they mesh well and work well in that environment. Um, and it's not for everybody. Um, you know, as a small business owner, yeah. some people thrive in a small business environment, others don't. And it's really finding, you know, the right people and good people. Right. It, your, your mom is still around, right? Yes. So I would imagine, well, is your mom and your wife mm -hmm. and other siblings, do they like just roll their eyes when you guys are at, you know, Thanksgiving dinner and talking about business or are you able to keep kind of the business and the personal stuff completely? We try our best. Yeah. I mean, our wives, uh, you know, I, I, when you think about entrepreneurs, you always think what they're going through, you know, it takes a special person to really be married to an entrepreneur as well. You know, we don't have, you know, a typical eight to five day to day schedule, you know, we're stressed out, um, yeah. you know, and, and there's all kinds of things that go on. So it takes a special, I think, type of person that can support that type of mentality and, and person that we have. And, you know, my wife is great from that perspective. Um, she's, you know, on, she has her own career path as well, which I'm equally supportive of. And it's the same way, you know, with my mom, but we'll get together at Thanksgiving and, you know, We'll go a certain amount of time and then suddenly, you know, something will pop in. Oh, hey, I talked to this customer and this yeah. is what they said. And we'll start going on this. And sure, we'll get some looks from time to time. And then we're kind of like, yeah, let's, we could discuss this later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think for something like this that we're so passionate about. And, and again, I think this stands true for, for any business owner or entrepreneur out there. You know, they're constantly thinking about it all the yeah. time. So, 
Well, it's a beautiful thing, man. I hope I hope you and your dad are able to take some time to step back and just kind of reflect on how beautiful of a thing that is and unique of a thing it is that you guys have going on. Yeah, and we try to do that from time to time. We've been, especially as he's now getting to the to the later stages of his career. You know, in, in looking at it, you realize uh, we realize how great it's been. So we're. You know, it's hard to do, but if we can take some time here or there to, you know, get out of the office and do something that's not business related that, you know, because we do see each other every day that, you know, when we see each other at a family event, you know, it's different than if you don't work with your with your parent. Yeah, because most of the stuff we would have talked about in a family event, we've already talked about when we see each other at work yeah. um, and things. So I think it's important that you do have, you know, some time carved out occasionally to, to do just things that aren't business related to work. Yeah. Um, so I've got some other random questions for you, but, um, are you a, a Mac or PC person? I've always used a PC. Um, you know, we just got my wife a Mac recently. Um, and I think I'm, I think I'm just one of those people that I've continuously used PCs because it's what I know and what I've used. But at the same time, just when it comes to operating system issues and, and the things that come along with it, um, you know, I, I'm definitely kind of more open now. I got myself a Chromebook recently and love the fact that it fires up in eight seconds and yeah. I can just be on the web and doing the things I need to do, you know, the kind of the bare essentials without everything else that comes loaded on, on some of these systems these yeah. days. Um, and what's the, what do you keep as the backdrop to your, to your computer? Right now, my work computer is a beach house in Baldhead Island in nice. North Carolina. Yeah. So um, it's a special place to us. My wife and I got married there, but you know, ultimately, it's one of our goals to have a have a vacation home there. And so, you know, that's my backdrop now. I see it every day. It kind of reminds you of you know putting in the extra call or what you're working for, you know, that day and, and so forth. Um, but it rotates. So occasionally, you know, we're, we're animal lovers. So occasionally it might be a picture of a dog or, you know, us do a on vacation somewhere or something of that nature too. But when do you recall the first time you ever walked into a data center? It was definitely with this business. Um, so, you know, it, what we find with some of our customers is not every customer that we have has a dedicated quote unquote test lab. So a lot of, a lot of companies will use data centers for, uh, you know, we'll use a portion of their data center as their test lab. They have the gear, they have the racks and they have everything installed. So I think the, the place where I was impressed the most that I went into as I was part of this business was when we went into Cisco. Um, you know, and, and just really saw, and this, you know, compared to some of the data centers out there now, the, you know, the Cyrus ones and, and entities like that that just are... By the way, Cyrus One, I'm going to be contacting you for uh, a fee for that plug right there. <laughs> um, we, did, we did some work for a customer at, a, at the Cyrus One facility in Chicago, and, you know, some of these things are absolutely massive. But when you really go into data centers and, and see, um, you know, just the amount of equipment and just you know, what's being spent on air conditioning costs and, and yeah. electricity and everything else, just at a core core thing. It's, it's so impressive now. Um, and, you know, as you are directly involved with and share with me, you know, yeah. just the growth and, and what you're seeing in, in the space to, to handle just consumer demand, you know, continues to grow. Yeah. So that first experience that you had, do you, do you remember like just being like, what was that experience like for you? I think my first thought, because we were going in, we had some gear in that data center and that when we're manufacturing it, you know, it's what we do and what you look at. And I remember walking in and, and having 
them say, oh, we'll take you, you know, 30 rows down to where your gear is, and then you go halfway down the row looking at it, and, and I think I later told my father I'd never felt our, our equipment look so insignificant in the big picture of things because it's what we're working on, what you do, and then when you when it's in a facility that's got row after row after row, you know, ceiling high of equipment, that when you finally see your equipment in the rack, it just looks like one tiny thing in this huge sea of, of things. So that was my initial thought uh, yeah. when seeing that. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I Related to that, I remember having a conversation with someone about their, like, half cabinet um, what they, you know, what they pay and like the couple servers that they had in there. And they said, but these, you know, you must spend a lot of money to build these things. And I said, yeah, we spent a lot of money to build these things, but think about how much all of these servers cost, all these database servers, all these big routers, there's more money in all the physical infrastructure that's inside these cabinets than there is in the generators and the battery backup systems and all that stuff. Um, I think a lot of people forget about that hard cost and that real cost that sits inside these data centers. And um, when people look at the industry, sometimes the numbers can be inflated because they're looping in the physical hardware into the actual property itself. But um, anyway, that's it's an interesting point that and I'm curious from your perspective too. And thank you for sharing it because you have a unique vantage point, right? Mm-hmm. You're looking at something very specific in there. It's no different than when like the uh, Eaton. Um, folks who like work with the generators and or the caterpillar folks like mm-hmm. they walk in and they go straight to that infrastructure and that's what they care about they don't understand a thing about what's going on on the server level um, but each person has their own e- unique perspective as to what's important to them and what I find fascinating whether it's just even the fiber portion of it or just all the technology in general is you go into these places and you really get a sense that of how much to your point how much different hardware is in is in these places whether they're routers whether they're transmitters and receivers whether they're you know any type of equipment they're putting in racks to to provide the services that they are you know ddos equipment you know all of the stuff it's amazing always amazing to me that you have all of this technology and all this equipment all of it's connected together and somehow it all works yeah you know that you can get you can go home log on to the internet and get the information you want it's going through you know multiple data centers and all this and everybody does things a little bit different and there's different software and hardware and everything else but somehow you know all of it all of it's able to to work together yeah well, my friend, I'm sure we could probably talk for another hour about all this stuff um, and geek out, but I greatly appreciate you taking the time. So, Kevin, if people want to find out more about M2 Optics and the products and services that you have to offer, or if they just want to connect with you and you know geek out on, on strands of glass, how, how can they find you? Um, any information for our company you can find on our website, which is m2optics.com, or if anybody is interested in connecting with me directly, um, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. And that's M, the number two, right? Yep. M is Mary, the number two, optics.com. And if they want to find you on LinkedIn, Kevin, K-E-V-I-N, Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R? Yes, that's correct. All right. And we'll have all of that in the show notes for this podcast as well. Well, I do have one last question for you. Okay. Do you love data centers? I love data centers. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> Well, thank you, Kevin. Appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I'm sure I'll be grabbing a drink with you sometime soon. Sounds great. I appreciate the time as well. All right, brother. 
So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.